Would you take your copies of God's Word and open with me to the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter of John, the last chapter in the last Gospel. John uh, refers to himself in this text and in other locations in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a mark of humility in that, isn't there? The disciple whom Jesus loved. doesn't name himself, but you know from the context that John's referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, closes his gospel with an exchange between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. This comes after Peter's blatant failure by denying Jesus three times at his arrest and subsequent trial and eventual crucifixion. If you're familiar with the story, Peter had repeatedly protested his resounding faith in Jesus. And the last night of in the upper room, Peter had said, Lord, I'm willing to go to prison for you. And Jesus paraphrased, said, are you really? And Peter protested further and said, in fact, I'm willing to die for you. That very night, Peter's faith was tested and he failed the test. I've said for years that unless the Lord is grading me on a curve, I have failed just about every test he's sent my way. And so in this exchange between Jesus and Peter, we're reminded that God is willing to show us the failures, the shortcomings, the flaws of some of our heroes in the Scripture. And He's willing to do that so that people like us might be encouraged and we might be renewed in appreciation for the grace and mercy that are found only in Jesus. Would you follow with me as we begin in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and I've broadened the parameters of the text. I've broadened the parameters of the text because it's necessary for you to see a little bit more than is originally listed in the worship bulletin this morning. Beginning in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net 
full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Continuing on in the story, the text says that Jesus uh, had revealed himself in verse 14, the third time, after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast in verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him in verse 17, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this saying, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who'd been reclining at table close to him and said, Lord, is it, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. She had taken her children to the park to break the monotony of homebound children through the summer break. And as she exited the car, the children hurriedly proceeded to the playground equipment. And you know how that goes. And so they were busily engaged in play just as a, another car pulled up and a young, attractive woman bounded out of the car with a bright smile on her face and briskly walked to a secluded picnic table on an adjoining lake. Uh, the young mo- uh, the young mother's uh, imagination began to run wild, and so she wondered why this woman would be going to that secluded picnic table at the adjoining lake. And so she began to imagine, well, maybe she's meeting her husband in the middle of the day for lunch. Or maybe she's meeting a friend, or maybe she's meeting a secret lover for a tryst in the park. Well, she got involved, uh, the young mom did, watching her children. And in just a few minutes, she glanced over at the woman and she was startled to find that the woman was bent in rapt devotion over an open Bible. 
She had walked briskly with a bright smile and enthusiasm in her steps because she was hastening to meet Jesus and spend time with him in his word. You know, the sight of that convicted the young mom. It pierced her heart. It pained her because she recognized that she had lost that same enthusiasm for the Lord. Her worship had turned to routine and ritual. Her devotional relationship with Christ had turned to drudgery. And her faith had wearied her. She was spiritually spent and fatigued. And the joy of her salvation somehow had vanished. We can all relate to that, I'm sure. We can relate to the loss of devotional fervor for the Lord. We can relate to worship that has become routine and service that is no longer fueled by a relationship with Christ. And so what do we do? How do we rekindle that relationship with the Lord? How do we renew a vital relationship with Him so that our relationship with Christ then informs everything about us? How do we rekindle a lost spiritual appetite that's so easily satisfied by other things. And sometimes we try to brace ourselves and tighten our belt. And as uh, some of us guys are prone to say, we try to man up and renew our commitment to the Lord by bowing our neck and gritting our teeth and trying harder. And yet Jesus' renewal of Peter's relationship in this context suggests something different. It suggests something altogether different. And and in this intimate exchange, which the Apostle John makes us participants in, we have the privilege of eavesdropping on this renewal of the relationship between Jesus and Peter. We have some insights as to how the Lord works in our hearts to renew our relationship with Him. You notice where the text begins, it begins with love for Jesus. Jesus works in our hearts to renew our affection for him, to renew our love for him. That's what's indicated in verses 15 through 17. After they'd finished breakfast, Jesus says, he he pours and points the question directly at Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times he asked him that pointed question. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Why begin there? Why begin with love for Jesus? Because that's the fountain, that's the spring, that's the source of everything else in the Christian life is love for Christ. It's where the Christian life begins. It's where the Holy Spirit in His regenerating work begins to change and enlarge our hearts. We begin to love the Lord. It's what Jonathan Edwards called in religious affections, religious affections. And the principal affection that the Holy Spirit stirs in our hearts and renews in our hearts is love for the Lord, love for Jesus, because everything else flows out of that. And because love for Him is the result of His work in us, Jesus points the question in verse 15, Simon, son of John, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, what's the antecedent? What does these refer to? Well, here's a couple of possibilities. These may refer to the other Six disciples who were there. They're mentioned by name earlier in the text. And maybe Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
kind of points in the direction of the other disciples. Maybe it's a, a reference to Peter's uh, bravado in the upper room when he said, I know these other men will forsake you and, and leave you, but I will not. I'm willing to go to prison. In fact, I'm willing to die. So maybe Jesus with a sweep of the hand says, Peter, do you love me more than these other men? Maybe it's a, relation, a reference to relationships. Do you love me more than any earthly temporal relationship? Do you love me more than family? Do you love me more than friends? Do you love me more than any other relationship in life? And that has different applications uh, depending on the season of life we're in. If we're single this morning, it's love for Jesus that compels us to make wise choices in dating. And uh, it would be uh, somewhat of a tangent to get off in that, but... But love for Christ then compels us to make wise choices in our dating, in whom we pursue and by whom we're pursued. If you're a parent, sometimes the love for Christ compels hard choices, principal decisions. Because that's what the Lord has called us to, is to make hard principal decisions. And so if you're a parent, the question would then be, do you love me more than a child? That's hard to imagine, isn't it? We could love the Lord more than a child, more than our own flesh and blood. And yet in his invitation to follow him, Jesus in Matthew 10 and elsewhere says, talks about the priority of love for him. That all other loves, all other relationships are secondary to the relationship that we have with Jesus. If you're a Muslim or Hindu in another country. Love for Jesus could mean the abandonment of your family to follow him. And so these may refer to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these may refer to other relationships. Or here's another possibility. These may refer to fishing. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine loving fishing more than I love Jesus. Uh, I have a very... Um, Short temper when it comes to fishing. You know, in about 30 minutes, if nothing's happening, I'm ready to go. But uh, skilled fishermen, devoted fishermen, tell me that defeats the very purpose of going fishing. But I can tell you honestly today that I do not love fishing. But maybe these refers to fishing as Peter's occupation. I have reason to believe, based on the text, look back at verse 3 that Peter had decided to return to fishing as, as, his, as his vocation. I have reason to believe that Peter was so discouraged as a result of the events that happened that he's made up his mind to go back and pursue his chosen vocation of fishing. Notice in verse 3 he says um, to the other disciples, they're mentioned by name in verse 2, uh, Thomas and Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and others are not mentioned, but he says to them, I'm going fishing, in verse 3. There's something definite about that, isn't there? You know, I'm abandoning this, uh, this discipleship relationship, and I'm going back to what I know best. I'm going back to the familiar. I'm going back to that which I can manage. I'm going fishing. And the others say, uh, we're going to go with you. And so the question that Jesus poses, do you love me more than these, may be a reference to 
employment, profession. Maybe it's an employment of what your profession gives you. Maybe it's a reference to, do you love me more than money? Do you love me more than power? Do you love me more than status? Do you love me more than ease? Do you love me more than accomplishment? And so Jesus reminds us, just as he reminds Peter, that love for Jesus has an expulsive power that excludes every rival to our relationship with the Lord. Love for Jesus is a result of God working in us. Romans chapter 5 says that the love of God, love for God, is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Love is the first characteristic of the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. We, as a result of the Spirit's presence in our lives, have love, joy, peace, and so on. It's a priority that Jesus is pressing the point here. Love for me becomes the priority relationship. And it becomes the priority relationship because in verse 15, 16, and 17, Jesus says love is the compelling power behind our obedience. It's what motivates our obedience. It Love is what motivates our serving, our worshiping, our witnessing, our caring, and our giving. You notice immediately after the question, do you love me? There's a series of commands that follow. Verse 15, Peter, do you love me? Then tend or feed my lambs. In verse 16, Peter, do you love me? Then tend my sheep. In verse 17, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. In other words, obedience is the expression of love. It's not, it's not the same as love, but it's the effect, the product of love. It's not drudgery if we love. It's not duty if we love. It's delight if we love. I had lunch uh, sometime in the fall, maybe early spring, with a a group of guys. There were about five of us, maybe six of us present. And we were talking about the early days when we first felt the awakening of love for our future wives. And we'd moved to the process of steady courtship and perhaps even engagement. And we talked about the silly, ridiculous things that we did because we loved our future wives. One man said he once drove 90 miles to change a flat tire, and he did it gladly because he loved his uh, fiance. Another man said that he even cross-stitch a present. Uh, this was in the early 80s. I am that man, by the way. <laughs> Self-confession here. Uh, I wanted to make something for Melinda. We were engaged, and... Um, we were about to be engaged, I believe. And, and um, so I sought ways to demonstrate my affection for her. And she had taken up, uh, you'll remember this, uh, you may even remember Hickory Ridge Mall. There was a cross-stitch uh, place in that mall. And she would, uh, in her spare time, doodle with cross-stitching. I went to the mall, unbeknownst to her, I got a little thing of cross-stitch. And, um, and what I cross-stitch is, I'm with you always. And uh, my mom and dad had been out of town, and they came home to discover that that I was cross-stitching. <laughs> uh, that's when they knew something was up. And you know what? It was sheer joy. It was sheer joy. You see, love is what compelled you to get up with a fevered child in the middle of the night. Love is what compels uh, a parent to go back into a burning building. 
Love is what compels you to, to pick up flowers just because on your way home, fellas. And if you show up at the front door and she says, oh, you brought me flowers. And you stand there with a dour, dour expression on your face, a grimace. And you say, I'm only doing my duty. It takes all the joy out of it. And so love is absolutely crucial. If our hearts would be renewed, love for Jesus becomes the compelling power of our motivation. It's more powerful than guilt. It's more powerful than fear. It's more powerful than the fear of punishment. The Puritan Samuel Bolton writes, there's nothing more powerful than love. Things impossible to others are easy to them that love. Love knows no difficulties. Love is an affection that refuses to be put off by duties or difficulties which come between it and the person loved. And so Jesus presses the claim to Peter and he presses the claim to us. Do you love me? That love becomes a priority. As love is stirred in our hearts, as the Lord stirs his love in us for him, it becomes the priority relationship and it becomes the compelling power of our obedience, then obedience becomes a delight. It becomes not a burdensome thing. You know, First John, uh, uh, John would write in First John chapter five: "This is the love of God that you keep my commandments, and my commandments are not burdensome. That is, they're not grievous." Jesus in John fourteen in this same gospel said to his disciples in the upper room: "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." In fact, he said it three times in verse. 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In verse chapter 14, verse 21, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love becomes the compelling motive of our obedience. 36-year-old mother was diagnosed to be an advanced stage of terminal cancer. And the prognosis was grim. Indeed, it was lethal. She sought the opinion of two consulting physicians and one said... You need to go home. There's nothing more that can be done. Enjoy the time that you have left because it will be brief. Another physician gave her this option and opinion. He said, there are treatments that we can pursue and it will buy you more time. It may extend your life for another year or more. It will be difficult. It will be challenging. It will be Hurtful and wearisome. It will be sickening. But you can go through chemotherapy and you can go through radiation and you can buy more time. She opted for the latter. She opted to buy more time because her love for her husband and her love for her children compelled her to endure great hardship and great illness and great suffering because she loved them more than she loved her own ease and comfort. And she wrote to her children these words, I've chosen to try to survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, and moods that I won't be able to control. But I must try this if only on the outside chance that I might live for you one minute longer. And that minute could be the one you might need me when no one else will do. For this I intend to struggle. So help me, God. Love compels us. It empowers us. It motivates us. It fuels our worship. It fuels our service. 
the context in this conversation, again, is the, the, the failure, the restoration of Peter after his failure. And it takes place uh, immediately after uh, his appearance in, uh, in another location. Look back at John 20 for just a minute. Uh, eight days uh, later, John 20, verse 26, says his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. The text says in verse 26 that Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe, do not disbelieve, but believe. And so in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It was as, it was as Peter saw the imprints of the nails and he felt the place in the side that he was moved to a place of worship and devotion. And I suggest to you this morning as we grasp a fresh Jesus love for us, revealed most clearly in the cross, revealed most clearly in his passion, On our behalf, we are renewed in our love for him. Notice also in this text, however, Jesus renews our trust in his purposes. Even when they're hidden from our eyes, even when we cannot understand what he's doing, he renews our trust and our confidence in those purposes. Verses 18 and 19, the text tells us that Jesus had predicted here how Peter was going to die. He says in verse 18, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said in verse 19, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus' ultimate purpose is that you and I would glorify God both in our life as well as in our death. And he is steadily at work to reproduce that willingness to trust him, even though those purposes are often hidden from our understanding and hidden from our view. Those purposes do not change. The context changes. And through the seasons of life, they take a different form and they uh, they manifest or show themselves differently. The shape of them changes. But the purpose of Jesus remains the same for us, to work in us so that we might glorify his Father and our Father. Maybe it's um, glorifying the Lord by caring patiently for an aging parent. Maybe you're glorifying the Lord by staying in a tough marriage because you made a covenant before the Lord. And so help you, God, the Lord is on your side to renew that covenant relationship with your spouse. Maybe you honor the Lord by living ethically in your job, by making hard choices, choosing to serve faithfully in that place rather than to make profit and gain the bottom line. Maybe you honor the Lord by pursuing moral purity in a pornographic culture on some campus or some school, in some locker room, in some workplace. You've chosen to honor the Lord there. So the purpose is often hidden from our understanding, are worked out in the day-to-day decisions that we make. And by His Spirit, Jesus is making His purposes a reality in our lives, though they are often painful and hidden from our eyes. Jesus knew exactly when and how Peter would die. 
And he determined that by his death and in the manner of his death, he would glorify the Lord. Many of you uh, are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. You're familiar with the fact that through a diving accident in her early to mid-teens, she was confined to a wheelchair. And though she struggled early with uh, God's providence in her life, she uh, later would write, God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. God allows in our lives in order to accomplish what he loves. And as our hearts are renewed in love for Jesus, we trust him to work out those purposes in our lives, though we often do not understand them and cannot see them. Philip Yancey, the author, prolific author, perhaps you've read some of his books there in Grace Place Bookstore. He says that he was a great chess player in high school, and years later in Chicago, he had an opportunity to play a chess master. And in the middle of that match, he discovered, Yancey discovered, that no matter the decisions or the moves that he made, the chess master was able to use those moves to serve his own ends. No matter the moves that we make, the choices that we make, the decisions that we make, the places that we go, no matter the season of life that you're in or the circumstances that you're in today, our Lord is able to bend those purposes to serve His own ends. And those ends are that we might glorify Him. Finally, in the text in verses 19 and following, Jesus renews His call to follow Him. It's an imperative. Follow me, he says to Peter. Follow me, he says to us. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's without condition or negotiation. Jesus repeated to Peter the simple, the simple urgency with which his ministry began. He repeated the, the invitation, the hard invitation that Jesus repeated throughout his ministry. In Luke 9, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, Take up your cross, deny yourself, and then follow me. Uh, Taking up the cross is not a difficult mother-in-law, though that can indeed be difficult. It's not a, it's not a overbearing, obnoxious boss. It's not a, a loud, difficult neighbor. Taking up the cross to follow Jesus is a reference to death. It's death to self. It's death to what we want. It's death to our ambitions. And in following Jesus, he's asserting his lordship. He says, it's the end of your life, Peter, on your terms. I bid you to come and follow me. I bid you to follow me wherever I will lead. It's a directional command. It orients our life. It's a life-changing command. It orients us to the priorities that God has established for our lives. And how ironic that it's the first words and the last words, the last recorded words, that Jesus spoke specifically to Peter. At the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And now after this horrific failure, Jesus comes to him with fresh grace and says again, Peter, follow me. On December the 10th, surrounded by his three brothers, King Edward VII, with a firm hand, signed the papers that sealed his abdication from 
the throne in England. Why would he do that? Why would he abandon the power and status and prestige of ruling Great Britain? Why would he give up all of that? Why would he yield the throne? Because his heart had been captured by the love of a woman, Wallace Warfield Simpson, an American divorcee. The night before he signed the papers of abdication, King Edward VII said to her, You can go wherever you wish. You can go wherever you want. But wherever you go, I will follow you. I will follow you. See, this is how the Lord renews our relationship with Him. He begins by renewing our affection, by renewing our love for Him. Because that love makes decisive priorities. That love then compels and motivates our obedience. Love for Him then enables us to trust His purposes as they're worked out in the stuff of real life, hard and hidden though they may be. And love for Him enables us to follow Him wherever He leads, wherever He goes, with all of our heart, we're enabled to say to our Lord, I will follow you. Bruce Wilkerson writes in his little book, Secrets of the Vine, that he had come to a season of life in which his tank was empty, he was running on fumes, and I, frankly, I've been there myself. I have been there myself. And he began to realize that he was living on the basis of knowledge and not relationship. And so he made this simple determination. He determined that that he would seek the Lord until he found him. That he would begin at a set time early in the morning with an open Bible and an open heart. And he would read from the scripture and he would take a, a little notebook And at the end of his time of meditating and feeding upon the Lord and his word, he would journal one page in which he had poured out his heart. He had poured out his fears, his concerns, his failures, his worship, his praise, his petitions to the Lord. The first week, it was tough. The second week, it was tough. But Bruce Wilkerson says, in that third week, In that early morning quiet, with an open Bible, I felt his presence enter the room. And steadily he began to renew my heart. It would be a mistake for us this morning to leave this text and think that the key to personal renewal is trying harder. Bowing our neck, gritting our teeth, pressing in, that will soon give way. But it would also be a mistake for us to think this morning that personal renewal can happen independently of the means that Jesus prescribes. He spoke to Peter. He uses his word and he works by his spirit to enliven those means of grace, to enliven our time in the scripture, to enliven our prayer, to enliven our public as well as our private worship. And so for that reason, this coming year, it will be on the web page, I believe the first week of January. We're offering two Bible reading plans so that you'll have a track to follow as you spend time with the Lord this coming year. One will take you through the scripture five days a week 
And one will take you through the New Testament five minutes a day, five days a week. We'll have posted on the website two plans for memorizing Scripture consistently. And we'll also have posted on that website books that will feed and stir your soul with fresh devotion for Jesus. It would be a mistake to think that you could enliven your own self by your own efforts. But it would be a mistake to think that the Lord would enliven you through some other means or methods than regular exposure to the means through which He works to renew our hearts. Our Father, as we bow in prayer before you this morning, we pray that you would make the claims of this text real that you would stir our desires afresh this morning out of love for you, that you would renew our affection so that our obedience becomes a delight, so that there is a renewed and fresh willingness to trust you in the difficult and hard seasons of life, and so that we become willing, no matter the cost, to follow you wherever you lead. Would you grant that, Father, for Christ's sake? In whose name we pray, amen.